For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and Oklahoma City Democratic Senator Julia Kurt sitting in for Ryan Kiesel, joining me over Zoom video conference. As Oklahoma nears 6,500 deaths this year from COVID-19, state health officials say 6,200 could have been prevented. OU epidemiologist Aaron Wendelbo says only 2% of deaths since January 1st have been people who have been vaccinated. He says he sees another increase around December unless more people get vaccinated. Neva, do you think this will encourage more leaders to urge vaccinations? Well, I think that's the hope and the, and the intent. And when you look at the, uh, the numbers, I mean, one of the things that he pointed out was that in Oklahoma, we're 132 times higher in unvaccinated people than those who are vaccinated um, and in the death rate. And so, you know, again, as you just said, Michael, I mean, when you're talking about 98 percent of those who have died were were folks that were unvaccinated, two percent of those 129 people, I think, was the number that Mm -hmm. he used that were vaccinated that died. I mean, uh, clearly, this is the continued uh, uh, push to try to make that uh, make that argument and try to get folks that heretofore have decided they did not want to be vaccinated, perhaps to reconsider. But as we've talked about on this show before in Oklahoma, folks, I think, largely have made up their mind. I mean, if they have chosen not to be vaccinated for whatever personal reasons, um, probably none of this uh, data, none of these statistics are going to be compelling enough to make them change their minds. So I think I think the landscape is fairly set, but I think we will continue to see this case made, particularly by uh, folks like the, the epidemiologists that uh, brought this information out this week. Senator Kurt. Yeah, you know, I just heard that we're getting about 9,000 new vaccination cycles starting daily. Um, And I think the State Department of Health is pleased with that, although it needs to keep going. Mm -hmm. And certainly the Delta encouraged a lot of folks to get vaccinated. Um, You know, this unnecessary suffering um, is going to continue. And also the economic losses we're seeing. Um, My daughter's 10. You know, we're trying to keep her in public school. All the parents are on edge. We've dealt with quarantines. I know that you know, workplaces are dealing with lost productivity because of quarantines. Uh, there's even folks not reentering the workforce because they're not sure about childcare and the safety of their schools. So, you know, until my kids can get vaccinated, um, I know that that changes my whole approach to the day. Um, so definitely vaccinations needs to be a priority. I think, you know, we haven't seen as much state level push as I would like to see for that. We very much pushed it down on the local level. Um, Same with frequent testing. Um, I'm just shocked that we haven't um, put more energy and effort into making sure testing is readily available. Um, I've heard from multiple constituents who've had a hard time even getting tested when they're ready. We should be making that as easy as it can be because that earlier detection is going to help us limit the spread. Um, I just talked to the State Department of Health about a new program. They're starting with some local school districts for regular testing using fundings from the uh, CDC. Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled with that, but I'm kind of like, why now? Why didn't we start this earlier? Because we still have CARES money left over. And we're looking at, we have 1.87 billion in American Rescue Plan money. Those funds can be applied now to mitigate um, the spread. And we should be doing that. Do you think this will change when we we get for kids or when they start getting to be able to be vaccinated? Do you think this will change any of the, the ideas about vaccinations, even for the adults? Well, I mean, the, the polling is yeah, it makes me very nervous. And I think we have to, as leaders, 
um, remind people how safe and effective these vaccines are. Um, the polling I'm seeing is very few parents are going to run right out with their kid and get them vaccinated the first day. I think something nationally they're saying 25%. You got to imagine that's even higher here. I mean, lower, excuse me. Um, so we've got to convince folks how safe these are, how tested they are, how many people have gotten them already and how few adverse reactions we have. And I think that's going to be doctor by doctor, school by school. Um, because it's every single vaccination in a room in a, you know, my kid's classroom has 30 kids in it is going to make a difference on the risk factors. I think it's important also to point out in some of these modeling uh, projections that, that what they're saying is that uh, hospitalizations will reach a low point by mid mid November. So, I mean, in, in the midst of all of this conversation, I think we are still seeing, and it's by, virtue of the fact that we have this uh, uh, this significant portion of the population that are now vaccinated and now even are getting their boosters. So um, it, it's going to be a conversation with us for a long time, um, regrettably. But I think the, uh, the, the one thing that we are seeing is that uh, there, there is some uh, hope that in the midst of uh, the kind of the backdrop of the negative numbers that we are seeing progress. And I think, I think that's important for folks to understand as well. The pardon parole board sets the stage for Oklahoma's first execution since 2015. The board denied clemency to Osage County convicted killer, John Marion Grant. The 60 year old death row inmate is set for execution on October 28th. The state put executions on hold after the botched execution of Clayton Lockett and using the wrong drugs on Charles Warner. Senator Kurt, what are your thoughts on the state starting up the executions again? Well, I mean, fundamentally, our state should not be executing people. Um, I remember very vividly five years ago when um, we caused those cruel failures of our system. Um, and I think that helps people. People should keep that there in their minds in terms of what is our state uh, spending our money and energy and time on. Um, we know from the data, all the data shows us that people of color are disproportionately very much overrepresented on death row, very much overrepresented in prisons compared to the population and the crime rates. We know that people with public defenders are significantly overrepresented on death row. Um, that is a problem. That's a problem of fairness, um, similar crimes with very different punishments. And I think as long as we know that these are not 100% fair. We know that execution is final um, and there's no going back. So I think our priority should be on our system, improving our system and trying to reduce the amount of violent crime in our state. Neva. Well, I think uh, in this instance, uh, talking about the denied clemency for John Marion Grant, I mean, let's take into account that the Pardon and Parole Board in 2014 unanimously denied clemency uh, for Grant. And it, at the same time, he did not make a personal appearance then. He did not make a personal appearance this time. I mean, when you look at the uh, the very brutal uh, murder that took place and the fact that in 2000, the year 2000, a jury trial, um, the jury came back with the death sentence. It has now gone through this long 23 years uh, since that murder occurred. And as the attorney general said, this is a this was a just and appropriate sentence for this for this murder and that the conviction and sentence has been affirmed uh, through the years through various reviews of appellate courts. And uh, I think now that we will see uh, very likely uh, the execution that's set for October 28th to take place. 
On Wednesday, Governor Stitt joined other Republican governors at the southern U.S. border. The group was invited by Texas Governor Greg Abbott to attack President Biden's policies there. Stitt says he's particularly concerned with the explosion of meth and fentanyl coming into Oklahoma. Neva, what did you think of the governor's trip? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it was, as you say, 11 Republican governors uh, uh, coming together at the uh, at the border, uh, clearly being initiated by the Texas governor, uh, Greg Abbott. They rolled out uh, 10 uh, border security recommendations that had been worked on for some time through the uh, Republican governor's public policy committee. And I think, uh, by and large, when you look at those, I mean, from a public sentiment standpoint, I think there would be broad uh, a broad agreement with the with the measures and the policy framework that they're outlining. Now, the reality is much of that will not take place quickly, but I think that we're going to continue to see in the minds of certainly in the minds of Oklahomans and and Americans uh, uh, across the country a real um, a real concern about what's happening at our border and what needs to take place in terms of trying to uh, uh, create some remedies. Senator. Yeah, you know, I mean, my big question is just with so many pressing needs in terms of our state issues and state leadership, why is he spending this time and this money on this issue? And, you know, I'm very involved with mental health and our behavioral health issues in our state. Um, If we want to deal with illegal drugs, really the things the state can do is help people um, reduce the demand, help people get treatment, make sure that we're addressing our own drug crisis here. Um, Certainly, I want the governor to be spending a lot more time reducing death and suffering from COVID, as we just talked about, um, and making sure our economy is in better shape for the long term. So certainly, immigration laws are a big challenge, uh, but these are not things that states can address. Well, I think when they are concerns for states, though, I think when we look at just the sheer numbers, I mean, in August, there were over 200,000 people detained crossing the border. Um, When you look at that number, Almost 19,000 of those were uh, teens and children who were not traveling with a legal guardian. I mean, though the influx of these numbers into um, uh, the across the border in Texas, Oklahoma being just the next state north. I mean, I think there is a legitimate concern about what is taking place and what is going to be done to mitigate uh, uh, this continued uh, huge influx of. Uh, Folks, and the 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 real departure from the from the administration standpoint in Washington of really trying to address this. I mean, the fact that governors now feel compelled to take uh, to take some really uh, extraordinary measures to try to address it because they're not getting the help and support that they need at the federal level. So it's a serious conversation. I think it's one that we're going to see governors across the country continue to weigh in on. An Oklahoma County judge blocks two anti-abortion laws from taking effect November 1st. The measures would ban abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, and another would strip medical licenses from doctors who perform the procedure. Three measures were allowed to go into effect at the start of next month. However, abortion rights advocates say they will appeal the measures to the state Supreme Court. Senator Kurt, do you think the high court will issue injunctions against these three other laws? Yeah, I'm really not sure. I mean, these are pretty carefully crafted laws, um, clearly trying to press different aspects of um, case law across the country. You know, we certainly in I was certainly a voice in the legislature opposed to these laws that limit health care. Some of the most private and grave circumstances. I 
when we were preparing um, to hear the bill, especially the OBGYN bill that would limit um, miscarriage care, um, abortion care to only OBGYNs, I talked to constituents who had gone through miscarriages, which are considered spontaneous abortions, Mm -hmm. or had dealt with um, the death of a fetus, and they would now have to seek specific uh, caregivers. Our state has way too few OBGYNs for the need. We have a lot of counties that don't have adequate care. Um, so I'm really concerned about prenatal care. We have a very high infant mortality rate and maternal mortality rate. Um, I think these laws are gonna, gonna complicate that um, and make the healthcare environment very um, difficult. So I'm not sure exactly what action that the, the Supreme Court will take, but I'm concerned about the laws that are going into effect, that they're not really going to address the problem um, that they're seeking to address. Neva. Well, I think uh, Judge Trong made it very clear, blocking the two anti-abortion uh, laws, keeping the three intact, uh, kind of setting the stage as uh, as uh, the senator just said, I mean, for the courts ultimately to have this back in their lap. And, you know, as we know, I mean, challenges to these anti-abortion laws can take years. I mean, even in Oklahoma, we've got the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, still considering um, an appeal that involves a 2015 law. And um, there's still uh, not been, you know, not been an opinion rendered on that yet. And I think all of this, as we look longer term and bigger picture, I mean, we can see that the U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, just began its new term uh, on Monday, um, could, you know, very well continue to see these major issues, including one that they are uh, scheduled to hear arguments on in December that is a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. So the conversation, again, as we've said on the show, on several of these topics that we're discussing is something that uh, there's no quick fix coming, but the courts clearly are going to ultimately have a big say. You know, one of the biggest things that, you know, I try to bring up and others try to bring up in, in concern about this law is some of these laws that have been presented is just looking at the real root causes um, if the number one priority for folks is reducing the number of abortions, there's proven methods um, that we're not putting into place. Um, economic in- independence for women, comprehensive sex education, and, and certainly better access to prenatal care. So I, I wish we would put the priority back in those things that we can do that are proactive, that help families, and that, that improve health care in our state. And just a few year, few days after that was uh, the decision by uh, Judge Strong was was put out. The Tex a Texas judge did actually ban the one going on in Texas, uh, the, the six week uh, abortion. So, do you think that procedure through the courts will also have an effect on this, Neva? Absolutely, uh, I think I think all of these uh, legitimately are going to be something that. The, the Supreme Courts, the state Supreme Courts are going to take up as well as the United States Supreme Court. The new chairman for Epic Virtual Charters governing board says he welcomes legislation to provide oversight to the school. Paul Campbell went before lawmakers earlier this week and called Epic's owners grifters, prolific liars and bad actors for taking a 10 percent cut out of every school dollar based on false pretenses. Neva, do you think there will be new legislation to provide oversight of EPIC? Well, I think there has been this ongoing conversation in the legislature. I mean, we have seen uh, legislation pushed 
put forward by uh, um, some uh, representatives and senators on this on this matter. Um, and clearly, I mean, in this interim study, I think it was uh, it was the continued piling on. You have the new chairman of the, the of the board, the governing board for Epic Charter Schools, uh, kind of taking a, a real um, a real frontal attack on the you know past leadership, and then the leadership after that coming out and basically uh, you know saying this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, and and just putting again a different spin on the uh, spin on the conversation, but. The bigger picture is looking at what to do in terms of focus on all of the charter schools in terms of uh, addressing how is the management being structured, what are the uh, percentages that uh, are being paid uh, on on each student in these uh, in these schools? And I think that's what really it appears the legis- some of the legislators are really keen in on. And that's a and that's a significant piece of this entire conversation because you know we saw tens of millions of dollars uh, going uh, to these for-profit management entities uh, that have been under scrutiny. That these audits have come back from the state auditor, you know, pointing out. Uh, all of these glaring uh, uh, points. And now I think uh, it's time to continue that conversation and look at the broader picture, not looking at just one, but looking at what what it's going to look like and what the need is for all of the uh, folks that fall under these charter schools. Senator Kurt. Yeah, I mean, we just we need public accountability and transparency for these Mm -hmm. public funds and our systems don't do that now. Um, and these concerns have been raised for a couple of years and the audit came out last year before legislative session started. So I'm a little concerned about whether we're going to take the action we need to. Several different proposals have come forward, whether they're improving the oversight of the virtual charter board, improving the um, oversight by the State Department of Education. Um, we have kind of separated and fragmented oversight now. And then we haven't really invested in the transparency needed um, but basically, no action has happened that, to the extent that's needed so far. So I definitely have concerns. I think we're very much counting on good actors in our charter schools, um, whereas our public schools have enough regulations and transparency that, you know, we have a lot of ways to counterbalance if there's problems or corru- corruption. Um, you know, I see when I as a public school parent, when I'm worried about decisions, it's real easy to show up the school board. It's easy to talk to my elected board member. And as a former nonprofit executive, I know how hard it is to have board members engaged and involved and, um, you know, making those hard decisions. So I hope we take action, but I think it's going to take a lot of public push for that to happen um, because there's there's, um, certainly voices against increasing accountability. Senator Absolutely. And, and I do think, I mean, Michael, I, I think one yeah. point talking about uh, some things that are being looked at mm-hmm. when you when you look at the fact that uh, local school boards, uh, local public school boards, they are required, their members are required to complete training. Um, and now we are, have the conversation about should traditional charter schools who right now are not required to have uh, uh, their governing board members complete training. And this training is really in uh, fiscal oversight. It's really giving them the capacity to understand. I mean, they're dealing with millions of dollars uh, uh, of, of monies coming in to the schools and how that money is being budgeted and allocated. And I think the fact that uh, in many instances, many of these uh, board members have not really fully understood uh, 
their not only fiduciary responsibility, but the fact that they have liability uh, attached mm-hmm. to this as a as a governing board member. So I think that those conversations, I mean, we've seen it uh, before. And I think the fact that uh, that that is one of the things that came up in the interim study uh, earlier this week, I think does give some promise that that lawmakers, as well as those in the in, in throughout education, are beginning to really understand that there has to be, as 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 Senator Kurt said, there has to be uh, accountability, there has to be transparency, there has to be responsibility uh, taken uh, by these folks that assume these uh, very serious positions as being a member of a of a school board, uh, just like any other uh, governing board. Senator, last session, the governing board would be considered adversarial toward any kind of transparency or any kind of accountability bills. But now you've got the governor, the, the governing board saying we're for it. Does that help you as a lawmaker to maybe push forward something like this? I hope it does. I mean, it's been a pretty strong political force. Um, you saw the figures in the articles this week about the, the Epic founders um, contributing um, and definitely getting the ear of elected officials in a, in a serious way. I don't know what other voices are play. You know, certainly when it comes to public education and money from public education, there's a lot of voices um, lobbying on all sides. So um, I hope that we have more intentionality around that. I know the State Department of Education put in place a specific position for overseeing charters in a different way, trying to truly help them instead of just um, that the compliance side trying to help them. Like we know that you should be publishing your board agendas, for instance. We want to help you with transparency. I think if we can have some of those logistical supports on the ground, it's not just about, you know, closing schools or some kind of adversarial approach, but it's like, we want these kids served well. Mm-hmm. And how can we make sure that's happening? The Senator Curtin, Neva Hill's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.